0: I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Rob, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Advances in the Treatment of Colorectal Cancer, and today's program is supported by Taiho Oncology, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. And we have over 203 people on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Ghana, India, South America, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. So we really are delighted that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us and programs going forward. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Al Benson III, Dr. Benson is professor of medicine, associate director for cooperative groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. Mm -hmm. Dr. Benson will be addressing an overview of colorectal cancer in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu. Current standard of care including staging and biomarker testing, new treatment approaches predicting response to treatment, and the role of precision medicine including heritable and non-heritable genetic and genomic testing. It's my pleasure now to join this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson.
2: Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join all of you for our discussion today, which does cover a number of important topics. Certainly, for now more than three years, COVID has had a profound impact on all of us, and certainly our health systems. We've noticed uh, decreased screening rates uh, for colorectal cancer, for example, delays in treatment, and monitoring after treatment. Delays in screening has been particularly worrisome because with delayed screening, we are much more likely to see individuals who have later stages of their cancers, uh, which uh, create challenges in in terms of of treatment. Uh, Things do appear to be getting a little better. We we are trying to catch up, but we still know that many people have not been screened. And uh, so we are encouraging people to be aware of screening programs and the importance of such. We also noticed, <clears throat> excuse me, some uh, problems with our supply chain. So, for example, for a while, it was difficult to get iodinated contrast to do CT scans. Uh, uh, personal protective equipment, for example, was often in, in short supply. And again, we're, we're catching up now, and, and I think things are better. It is critically important, though, that people have their vaccinations. Uh, There's the newer bivalent COVID vaccine. And, of course, uh, many of you may have heard the concern about uh, the influenza season. So having your flu vaccine is also uh, critically important. Um, We still try to screen people for COVID, and, and that can affect Uh, where we treat people in the hospital and in some cases still may result delays in chemotherapy. But overall, it does look a little better. On another topic, uh, one striking area of advancement across many cancer types, including colorectal cancer, is research at understanding the role of our immune systems and how that plays in the development of cancers. And this has led to the development of specific immunotherapeutic drugs. In colorectal cancer, the most frequent use of immunotherapy is for patients who have alterations in the DNA mismatch repair pathway. Pathologists are now routinely reporting alterations When evaluating a colorectal cancer tumor, and all colorectal cancer patients should know their mismatch, repair, or MSI status. Briefly, uh, microsatellites are short repeating DNA sequences across the human genome. These sequences are very prone to errors, and there are genes that can correct these errors. If a tumor has what's called a deficient mismatch repair protein uh, or microsatellite instability, these errors are not corrected and tumors can develop. Mismatch uh, repair genes can be altered through germline or inherited mutations, and I'll come back to this in a little bit, or uh, by non-inherited loss of expression. About 15% of colorectal cancer tumors are deficient mismatch repair, and most of these are sporadic or non-inherited. Most patients have earlier stage disease and do very well after surgery, but it's estimated that perhaps 15% of cases have advanced or metastatic disease. The good news is that for patients with deficient mismatch repair tumors, immunotherapeutic agents known as checkpoint inhibitors have shown significant benefit for those with metastatic disease, and it's become the mainstay approach for those individuals. Despite these advantages, there's still much we don't know, and clinical trials continue uh, to be conducted so that we can learn more about the immune system and the use of immunotherapeutics. Another somewhat related area of research is investigation of the human microbiome, which consists of microorganisms, particularly bacteria, that are components of our intestinal tract and are certainly essential for our health, including our immune systems. We know the human microbiome has evolved in recent years and is likely contributing to the development of cancers. For example, the yearly increase in numbers of younger people developing CRC may be um, related to these changes in the microbiome. For individuals with stage 1, 2, or 3 colorectal cancer, the most important biological test is looking for MSI or deficient mismatch repair. Uh, For patients with advanced, recurrent, or metastatic disease, we are routinely evaluating patient tumors uh, and or circulating DNA for other genomic or molecular changes that are now uh, linked to very specific treatments. Increasingly, this assessment is performed by Next Generation Sequencing, or NGS, that can evaluate hundreds of genes within the tumor, including uh, relatively rare events such as NTRAC fusions, for which there are now very specific treatments. The most commonly identified observed changes, including RAS mutations in over 40% of individuals, BRAS mutations in about 10% of people, and those uh, and for those who have uh, non-mutated RAS, known as wild-type RAS, we also look for HER2 expression, again, because we have treatments that uh, are appropriate for people with these uh, particular uh, uh, tumor changes. For those with uh, RAS mutations, we know that the anti-EGFR drugs, cetuximab and panitumumab will not work as they do for, the, for individuals who have RAS wild-type uh, tumors. In terms of uh, uh, other advances, uh, until recently, we have not had drugs for RAS mutations, but this is changing, and clinical trials are now reporting positive results for subtypes of RAS mutations, such as what's known as G12C. We now have combination therapy for BRAF mutated individuals as well as those with HER2 expression. Now coming back again to deficient mismatch repair tumors, as I I mentioned, uh, the majority of individuals do not have inherited colorectal cancer, but it is important to identify those people who do since these are the people most likely to benefit from immunotherapy. In addition, uh, those with inherited cancers differ in terms of surgical considerations, uh, type of surveillance after treatment is complete, and the need to test family members, since those who are positive by testing need genetic counseling and appropriate screening. Those who have inherited cancers most often have what's known as Lynch syndrome. The tumor test we look for, again, is uh, microsatellite instability or what is known as deficient mismatch repair. And as I stress, this is now routinely being uh, reported on tumor specimens, but um, it is equally important uh, to look for those who might have inherited uh, uh, risk for CRC, and that's where we do blood testing for the look for a germline mutation. And finally, uh, a very important newer area of technology advancement is the ability to locate circulating tumor DNA in a patient's blood where we are looking for potential treatment targets, but Also uh, evaluating individuals who might be most likely to occur from their, recur from their original colorectal cancer, and also uh, to monitor if treatment is being effective. This type of research is now uh, actively being conducted through clinical trials, and we would certainly urge people to participate in these trials whenever possible. Uh, The way we've made all of our advancements is through uh, clinical research, and we're actively developing trials, uh, looking, as uh, I mentioned, at the microbiome. Uh, We're looking at uh, circulating tumor DNA in a variety of different circumstances and certainly trying to uh, develop new treatments, And uh, it looks like we're at least beginning to make headway uh, for people with RAS mutation, as I mentioned, because that has been a uh, a great challenge in the past. So with that, I'll conclude uh, my remarks and uh, turn this back to Dr. Mesner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really an outstanding presentation and really um, you the context for today's program and um, just a lot of wonderful information. And I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, And our next speaker is Dr. Um, Saab. Uh, Dr. Saab is leader, uh, gastrointestinal cancer program, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, professor Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, consultant, Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And Dr. Saab will be addressing the role of targeted cancer therapies, clinical trial updates, how research contributes to treatment options, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, follow appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Saab.
3: Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's always a pleasure to be uh, with you and and with the program. So, uh, you know, Dr. Benson uh, did go through quite a bit of of an opening for some of the discussions we will be having uh, uh, during my uh, 13 to 14 minutes you know we are more and more moving uh, away from uh, uh from the days of uh, uh chemotherapy um, although chemotherapy remains a big and important aspect of everything we do uh but as as uh, uh as Dr Benson described um as we're learning more and more about the genetics of cancer and the genetic predisposition to some cancers in addition uh, to uh, uh, to the genetics uh, of the particular cancer, we are learning more and more about how to best optimize uh, targeting uh, uh, cancer. Now, uh, when we say targeting cancer, uh, we are talking mostly about uh, the precision aspect of oncology, meaning that we have Uh, a target which we would would consider as the main driver uh, for cancer. In other words, you think about it as uh, the Achilles heel of individual uh, cancers that you can go after and knock essentially the cancer cell down. There are a number of, in colorectal cancer, a number of uh, targets that continue to rise, including uh, Many of the targets that Dr. Benson mentioned, um, and more coming down the pike. Uh, most of these are molecularly targeted uh, uh, strategies, so they go after a specific uh, molecular target. Also, Dr. Benson talked about some of the immune therapies, which, in some ways, you know, have molecular bases that drive the immune uh, aspect uh, for responses to these immune therapies. So, we're learning more and more about all these. In fact, you know, if we look today at uh, uh, the landscape, molecular landscape and immunologic landscape of colorectal cancer that leads to therapies, uh, we're starting to see 30-40 percent of patients with colorectal cancer that will qualify for specific targeted cancer therapies. Now, many of these targeted cancer therapies uh, are uh, essentially uh, uh, being tested on clinical trials. Some are already approved, such as those targeting BRAF v 600 e mutations, others like HER2 amplifications and KRAS, KRAS, G12C, uh, targeting are actually making their way into the FDA, into the clinic ultimately, we hope. So there's quite a bit uh, going on, but most of the work in, uh, in uh, uh, learning more about how to optimize targeting of cancer and developing therapies in that space is on clinical trials. Uh, and uh, that, that brings an important point. To you. As the patient uh, uh, the patients are, are uh, essentially volunteers on, on these trials. Uh, they help move research forward, and for many reasons. One, of course, you know, there's uh, always the selfish component, and it, which is an important component. I mean, you want to do something that hopefully will benefit you. But uh, uh, most of our patients, uh, if not all, will do it for altruistic measures as well, meaning they want to advance the science. They want to help other patients as well by contributing to the research. Every agent that made it to the clinic has gone through a clinical trial uh and And without the patients, we would have never been able to answer the question. Without the researchers, we wouldn't have never established the question so it's a partnership and it's an important partnership that continues to advance the science and the care of our patients with with cancer and some of the Some of the more recent uh, advances have been just short of remarkable uh, <clears throat> with uh, many times. Uh, patients seeing responses uh, that are uh, uh, the equivalent of a cure even in the most advanced stages of the cancer. It's an incredibly remarkable time uh, to, be treating, uh, to be treating cancer uh, and to be researching cancer. Uh, so we see, we see some, some great responses. I want to just particularly talk about one protein uh, and gene that has been one of the most challenging genes to go after for 40 years, uh, uh, this uh, major driver in colorectal cancer, KRAS, has been known uh, to, to predict negatively for the effectiveness of some therapy and also driver of very aggressive uh, phenotype for the cancer. But for the last 40 plus years, we've been uh, trying every way possible to target this, this gene. And uh, some uh, uh, aspects of targeting these genes were indirect. Others were, uh, you know, more uh, uh, direct, although were targeting multiple KRAS genes. And they resulted in almost no effectiveness uh, or high level of toxicities. So this is changing. And that's good news. So the first uh, one of the KRAS genes that's being targeted is KRAS G12C. I know Dr. Benson touched upon this briefly, but this one was the first, uh, although it's one of the less common ones, 2% two, two of patients with colon cancer will have a KRAS G12C. But we, we and others have presented good data on... Uh, um, of, uh, some of the responses, and as I said, you know, for some patients, the responses are quite magnificent uh, and really promising as we continue to move forward with this. Now, this is moving into earlier lines of therapy, and so I'm, my suspicion is that we're gonna continue to see major advantages. Now, one may ask, okay, you know, we started with that one, how about others? The good news is the more common ones ag G12D, which is about 30% of patients uh, with uh, 30 to 40% with RAS mutations will be G12D. There's, uh, uh, there is one agent making it uh, into the clinic uh, and another one to follow um, that specifically target this. And, and I'm hoping that we see some of the responses that we've seen with targeting G12C. That would actually be a major uh, major advancement Uh, in in how we care for patients with KRAS mutations. Of course, since this is mostly talking about colorectal cancer, this is exciting, but it also applies to other cancers as well, including pancreas and others. And so it's it's quite ubiquitous, and and I think that's one example of how research contributes to creating new treatment options and create the path for future treatment options. So very exciting times along that. you know as we learn more and more about these agents also we we learn about their uh, particular uh, toxicities that are a little different than uh, chemotherapy some of them are similar fatigue uh, <clears throat> but many may be different uh, some would affect uh, uh, the skin skin rashes uh, eye toxicities that by the way are all manageable as long as we follow the patients closely and we keep a close eye on um on, uh, on the toxicities and, and also learn uh, how to manage and optimize the, toxic, the, the care for, uh, for those patients. So it's a partnership, again. Uh, the best way to manage side effects is to establish that uh, uh, the patient is our partner, right? the patient and their caregiver is, are our partners in this, in this journey. and. Uh, early recognition. We spend a lot of time educating our patients, and uh, uh, part of the education is the importance of reaching out to us at, uh, at the time where these toxicities start rising because early intervention always wins. Early intervention always ensures that those don't get too complicated and that we reverse uh, many of those by stopping the medication for a little while, um, uh, cutting down on the dose occasionally. Uh, stopping it altogether if the toxicities are severe. But early intervention prevents uh, severity and and, uh, certainly uh, keeps the patient's quality of life uh, preserved. Uh, As I said, some these toxicities that we're learning more and more about are a little bit different. For example, with uh, the G12C uh, inhibitors, the KRS G12C, specifically with one agent, we see some uh, uh, some abnormality in the heart rhythm, we keep an eye on. Nothing life-threatening, but important to keep an eye on and consider uh, uh, those reductions or, or even stopping the medication, which uh, is rare. The HER2 uh, inhibitors, again, making their way here, uh, uh, do have uh, some effect on the heart muscle. Uh, and so we keep a close eye with echocardiograms and EKGs and others to make sure that essentially we don't reach a tipping point. And again, mostly reversible. Uh, Most of the patients, 99-plus percent of the patients, will have no sequelae to that. Again, as long as we we keep a close eye on things. The BRAF inhibitors, uh, the MEK inhibitors, have skin toxicities, rash that can get quite severe if not attended to, uh, Ocular toxicities, again, um, eye toxicities that uh, need to be uh, attended to. Now, these are these are not common toxicities, but uh, again, when they arise and we pay close attention and early attention to them, uh, they're reversible and mostly with no sequelae as long as we do all the right things. So, it's an important uh, aspect of our discussion, this is a partnership we need to educate Uh, the patients and the caregivers, and we expect the patient and the caregivers to reach out to us uh, in real time to ensure that we take the best care of them. Um, You know, as we moved more and more in the last era towards uh, telehealth and telemedicine, things have changed. Now, uh, you know, the the telemedicine appointments are certainly uh, a part of our care, but not an exclusive aspect of our care. In other words, Nothing uh, replaces the face to face. I think about telemedicine, especially uh, for patients that we actively treat, uh, uh, as uh, uh, an important aspect of our care is to actually see the patient, assess the toxicities in real time, uh, and be able to uh, uh, care for the patients in the clinic. Now, many of these agents also remain infused, and as such, Uh, would require, uh, you know, physical presence. Now, where telemedicine has been quite helpful for our patients who are actively treated is uh, a lot of the oral medications where, uh, you know, we, I would say, unnecessarily had to bring patients in necessarily for the assessment of the toxicity, but no more than that, Uh, bring them into the clinic on a weekly basis. Now, you know, we have moved many of our patients to come to clinic every four weeks And then replacing the physical visits by telehealth visits, uh, a quick check uh, that could be performed by any uh, part of our clinical team uh, to ensure that we keep the patient safe. At the same time, minimize the inconvenience of having to come back and forth. Now these can be quite tricky and, and, and part of it has to do with the fact that I don't physically see my patient as a whole. And that can certainly be limiting. The other thing is, of course, technology. Uh, there are many uh, uh, many limitations to uh, uh, a good telemedicine appointment, such as uh, you know not having the right microphone, not having the right camera, and of course, you know, optimizing the internet connection to ensure that again, you know, the the, the picture is not choppy, the sound is is good, and you're seeing the doctor. Uh, or the provider uh, in in, an optimized fashion. So that's important. You want to make sure you have a good camera, you have a good sound system, and uh, that uh, essentially you have a good Internet connection to do this. Uh, For telemedicine, it's important to have a good prepared list of questions, uh, uh, as this will help. And if you can send, uh, many times I ask my patients to send those ahead of time, uh, so at least my nurses uh, or myself, when, when, when I can attend to, uh, would would already be familiar with the gist of these questions. That certainly includes, uh, you know, an understanding about the follow-up, the toxicities of the treatments, uh, discussions about quality of life concerns, and and other elements. So when we think about it, this has actually revolutionized the way we care for our patients. Where now okay. I don't need to uh, uh, inconvenience my patient every every minute of, uh, uh, every, every week or even every two weeks to come to the clinic on treatment and, 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 and alternate with telemedicine. And for patients who are long-term survivors not on treatment, also alternate some of these treatments, uh, some of these visits by telemedicine. Uh, so I'll finish at that point and I want to thank uh, Dr. Messner and, and everyone on the call uh, for your attention.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Saab. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation with a lot of key information for people to review um, over again. Just to remind everyone that the program occurs in real time, but we also will have, um, uh, it will be archived on our website as a podcast, and um, so you'll be able to listen to it again if you wish to, to get more to hear it again. So thank you so much, Dr. Dr. Saab. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairdon, and Ms. Bairdon is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and Ms. Bairdon will be addressing hydration and nutrition concerns and tips. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden.
4: Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Nutrition and hydration are essential, um, not only in your tolerance to treatment, but also providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Now, during treatment, maybe even before treatment starts, and even after treatment, your diet might be modified. Um, It's important um, to know that sometimes these changes can be temporary, um, just based on what you're going through at the time, but communication with your healthcare team is very important, because especially during treatment, Things can change along the way, and um, keeping them abreast of that can help them help you better. So, one of the healthcare team members is a dietitian, and the dietitian's role is to ensure that you have the information um, to obtain the nutrition that you need. And, Um, know what your needs are. So some potential side effects that can happen during treatment are things like constipation, diarrhea, maybe nausea and vomiting. You may experience some changes in taste or even a decrease in appetite. Some patients experience fatigue. And so all of these things can influence your eating, believe it or not. Um, And so each person is unique and their side effects vary. So it's so important that you do communicate with your healthcare team as things come up. So a dietitian can not only um, give you tips and suggestions on modifying your diet based on your side effects, but can also help you with energy and calorie needs, um, fluid needs, sometimes fluid is left off the list, but we're going to talk about that in in a few minutes here. And um, just helping, you know, tricks and little suggestions to help you meet your nutrition goals. Um, a lot of times I get patients that feel um, like, oh gosh, I have some weight to lose, and it's really not a big deal if I lose some weight. But when you're going through cancer treatment, it's a little bit different. And um, we don't want significant weight fluctuations while you're going through therapy. Um, some patients may have. Um, some anatomy changes that they go under a surgical intervention, maybe an ostomy is placed, um, and so there may be some diet changes based on that. Some people have them reversed at the um, at the end of their treatment, so there's diet changes that come with that. So the dietitian's really here with you throughout your your treatment journey. Um, one of the things that we focus on is making sure that you are able to consume your nutrition needs. Like I mentioned a minute ago, we don't want any significant weight fluctuations. Primarily because when you aren't eating enough, your body uses your protein stores for energy. And we need protein, we need our muscles um, to help us do the things that we enjoy. Um, gives us the energy to breathe, to get up and down, to walk around and have endurance. But like I mentioned, if you're not Eating enough, um, this this store in our body can be compromised. So it's very important that that your your awareness around that is there. Now. Oftentimes, there can be side effects to your treatment. I mentioned a few of them a minute ago. Um, the doctor will oftentimes prescribe you medications. A lot of these symptoms and side effects are, are known. Um, we just don't know the extent of which a patient may experience them. But make sure that you feel comfortable in how to take your medications and when to take your medications. It's always nice to keep a log of that to make sure that you're um, staying on track. Um, if you find that you have side effects, sometimes certain foods that you eat may make you feel a certain way or maybe you don't tolerate them as well, taking note of that and talking with your dietitian about that can help them help you better. Um, sometimes it's hard to recall when you come to a doctor's visit all of the little details that you know have been going on, and so keeping that record is extremely helpful and they can help you uh, more quickly that way. Hydration is very important, and oftentimes we, we focus so much on calories and protein and weight that we, we kind of forget to talk about hydration. And hydration is essential. Um, whenever you're you're dehydrated, it can actually amplify some of your side effects, such as nausea, fatigue, it can give you headaches, contribute to constipation. Um, and so, an average person needs about eight to ten eight-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Now. Fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, so this includes things like gatorade, water um, milk, juice, those sorts of things all fall under a fluid and um And so, just consuming those throughout the day and maintaining your hydration is important. Some side effects when you know that you're not getting enough hydration um, may initially start with a feeling a drier mouth. Maybe your lips are cracked and dry. Your urine can even appear to be darker than normal. Um, And so, those are some symptoms that you may experience, um, and that can communicate your body's communicating with you. It's not getting enough fluid. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team, and the dietitians, one of them, we're all dedicated to you, and we want to be there for you throughout your journey um, and want to be available to you. So please communicate, get your contact information for your team so that you can reach out to them sooner rather than later. Thank you so much for letting me be part, uh, part of today's workshop. I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was excellent. I know there'll be questions for you during the Um, Q&A. It's just wonderful to have you on the call today, so thank you. So I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, free programs and services. So please get your questions ready because we're going to move right on to the Q&A after I speak. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and many people contact us by calling our helpline, 800-813-4673. And usually when they call, they speak with a trained oncology social worker. We have about 45 of them. And um, they are all scheduled to speak, on to be on the call, to take your call. So you don't have any wait time, which is really lovely. And we're open Monday through Friday during business hours, uh, East Coast, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, also, many people can post their questions of the global participants on our website, www.cancercare.org. And you can register for our programs, these workshops, um, at uh, www.cancercare.org backslash connect. Now, in terms of the services that Cancer Care offers, we, there are a lot of them, and I'm going to try to highlight a few of them for you. Um, we offer practical and financial assistance, which is very important to people right now. Um, it always has been since the inception of Cancer Care, um, but it's about 79 years ago, but to some extent very much important um, We also offer um, a chance to talk with one of our social workers, really support services. So many people call with a particular question that they have for the social worker, who then goes through all the different issues that a person might be confronting. In addition to that, we also have what we call coping circles, which are uh, small groups for people to discuss different issues. Um, We also offer online support groups to people. Many people find those very helpful, and they're for all different uh, ages um, for both young adults, middle-aged adults, older adults, caregivers, spouses, partners, people living with a particular type of cancer, and those you can find on our website, and they're really a wonderful groups. People find them very helpful. We do offer publications at, at Cancer Care, um, which you can get on the website, and also, of course, these workshops that you're. But we do about 80 of them per year. In addition to that. You also, um, we also have a pet assistance program for people who have a, a cat or a dog and they are ill themselves and not able to walk their dog or, um, or they aren't that cat changed the litter box, needs some help with the care of their animal, uh, Cancer Care will assist with that as well. So it gives you a snapshot of our programs, and they're all listed on our website, so you can look at them again. Now... We're now going to move on to the Q&A, questions and answers. And so I'm hoping that you're all set to ask questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So uh, I'm going to ask Rob to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And again, I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Rob?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web. You may submit questions by clicking
2: Ask a Question.
1: So it's a question for um, Dr. Um, B- Benson. Um, my doctor suggested surgery as a treatment option. What happens after? Do I have to change my lifestyle?
2: Well, uh, with surgery, uh, and so for an individual with colorectal cancer, and certainly the majority of people who present with colorectal cancer have stage one, two, or three disease. And so those are individuals where surgery is a critical component of their care. (coughs) Um, uh, Rectal cancer is a little bit more complicated because nowadays with rectal cancer, we give treatment such as chemotherapy and chemoradiation And actually, for those who have deficient mismatch repair tumors, as I've mentioned, there are now trials looking at immunotherapy for those
3: individuals.
2: But what's critical in determining a strategy is the stage of the disease. So when we first evaluate an individual where we're doing blood tests and biopsies and looking at CT scans and MRIs, for example, we tried to determine what's called the clinical stage. And With this stage, it helps guide us. So for example, should an individual go to surgery as the first component of their therapy? Uh, After surgery, the pathologist will have the surgical specimen, which enables us to have the pathologic stage, and that pathologic stage, and and in some cases with the components of the clinical stage, determines whether after surgery a person needs additional therapy. And for many individuals, that may be, for example, three months of chemotherapy and that will complete the treatment component. And then individuals enter surveillance where we are carefully monitoring people to make sure there's no evidence of of recurrence. But it really depends on what the stage is, the overall circumstances, as well as critical components as to the person's overall health status. Uh, helps make these decisions, and in many cases, we have a multidisciplinary team review where, for example, the surgeon, pathologist, radiologist, gastroenterologist, medical oncologist, <coughs> excuse me, will all be involved in helping to construct a treatment approach for an individual patient.
1: Thank you so much. And I think we have a telephone question, Um,
2: uh,
0: Rob. We do. We have one telephone question, and your line is now open. Please go ahead and ask your question.
1: I currently have diverticulitis and suffer continually from IBS.
2: Could this uh, lead to colorectal cancer somewhere in the future?
1: Thank you for that question. Good to have you on the call. Thank you. uh, Dr. Benson, could you address that question in a general way? I yeah. So
2: um, uh, there's no convincing information that diverticulitis per se uh, is a, a risk factor, um, even though there's inflammation. But in general, diverticulitis is a very limited disease. Uh, there there are people who may need uh, a surgery to remove part of the inflamed area and others who may be treated with antibiotics and then that's, that's uh, over and done with. Uh, IBS uh, usually refers to irritable bowel syndrome and that in and of itself uh, does not have a, a, an association. Um, inflammatory bowel disease IBD however uh which is a chronic inflammatory state uh is associated with risk of colorectal cancer and so uh those individuals would be generally under the care of a gastroenterologist who would be carefully monitoring the intestinal tract and screening to make sure uh, there's no evidence of the development of uh, cancer.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And another question for you, Dr. Benson. My doctor found polyps. Is there anything I can do to prevent them from becoming cancerous?
2: Well, uh, the most critical component uh, in terms of dealing with polyps is a screening program. Uh, Now, there there are certainly polyps that can uh, transform into a cancer, and therefore, removal of the polyps is critical uh, to help prevent the development of a frank cancer. And so, if, if an individual has a polyp diagnosis, it's important to know what type, it's important to know that the polyp was completely removed. It's important to know, was there any evidence of cancer within the polyp? And also importantly is to discuss with the gastroenterologist what should be the interval of the next colonoscopy. So there are individuals who may need a colonoscopy screening every three years. There are some every 5 years and for many individuals uh, 10 years may be sufficient but that's a discussion uh with the gastroenterologist and knowing the details of the of uh, the polyp but the, the best prevention strategy is is colonoscopy and removal of polyps before they have a chance of transforming to a malignancy Uh, Fortunately, for most individuals, this is a fairly slow process. Uh, For most people, the transformation is an instant. So that's why uh, intervals may be as long as five or ten years, because the process of developing a polyp and then eventual transformation can be uh, quite lengthy. Uh, that, that is not true uh, for people with uh, Lynch syndrome or an inherited type of cancer risk. Those individuals need much, much more frequent screening. And for many people, they are having their colonoscopies every year and uh, uh, as well as uh, upper endoscopy, looking at the stomach and small intestine perhaps every two to three years.
1: Excellent. And interesting is a question from one of a person who's a caregiver for Dr. Benson. I'm a, I'm a caregiver of a colon cancer patient. The patient has finished his first two-week course with minimum side effects. Are side effects cumulative, or is this a good sign that future rounds will be the same? And again, it's a general, I guess it's a personal question, but if you could answer it in a general way. Sure. Uh,
2: So um, uh, many of our uh, regimens, uh, although certainly have risk of side effects, but uh, for many people, uh, the side effects are uh, very, very manageable. And I have many individuals, for example, who work full time on their uh, colorectal cancer chemotherapy programs. Um, There is is a risk uh, of a cumulative toxicity. So, for example, with oxaliplatin, which is very commonly used for colorectal cancer individuals, um, we have to look very closely for what's called peripheral neuropathy, burning, numbness, or tingling in the hands or feet, because that can be progressive, and although it may completely resolve over time, it may not, and we don't want people uh, disabled. But generally, if people are tolerating their first cycle pretty well, that's a good sign. Um, over time, as people are exposed to these drugs, there they may be a little more fatigue. Um, but uh, overall, um, the expectation is that uh, people will Be able to uh, tolerate this and get through their recommended
1: program. Excellent, thank you. And um, a question uh, from Ms. Bearden: Um, How can diet affect colon cancer? Are there foods I should eliminate from my diet?
4: Um, It's really about what you're incorporating into your diet, which is going to be the most kind of the best way to look at it. So. what we found, research found, is that a plant-based diet um, where about two-thirds of your plate come from a plant-based food, and that being as close to harvest as possible. So that means if it looks like it did when it was harvested, that's how you want to consume it. There's a lot of processed items that are out there that can be confusing, uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But what I tell patients is that fresh fruits and veggies Frozen fruits and veggies are going to be your top um, picks. Um, canned are going to be um, kind of your second line because you want them as close to harvest as possible. So fresh and frozen are going to be the most um nutrient-dense options, and as a matter of fact, frozen is actually superior to fresh. Believe it or not, um, they're allowed to ripen completely on the vine. They har- they harvest them, clean them, and then they freeze them. So you're getting a more abundant flavor as well as more uh, the, the nutrient composition is going to be more abundant also. And um, other plant-based foods such as your whole beans, peas, and lentils, um, and uh, um, other grains such as your... Um, Oatmeals, rice, um, quinoa, those sorts of things, um, covering about two-thirds of your plate, and then one-third of your plate coming from a lean protein source. Now, um, ideally, you want this to be um, a, a, a lean protein, such as a fish. Um, cold water fish are going to bring a unique component to your to your plate. They're going to have something called omega-3s in them. And, and it's in a special form in our cold water fish that we don't see in any of our other foods um, known as DHA and EPA. We know this helps reduce inflammation. And we know inflammation is something we want to be mindful of, and, and bringing in a lot of anti-inflammatory foods um, can help reduce that. All of our plant-based foods are naturally anti-inflammatory. So that's why so much of our plate is covered with those plant-based foods. Um, The key to our plant-based foods is going to be the color. You want a lot of color variation. Um, It doesn't, there's not any special nutrients in a blueberry or a blackberry. Um, I know sometimes it can be confusing out there. Um, They try to really push those sorts of things but really it's just about colors so if you like eggplant if you like you know greens if you like um, spinach or cauliflower that's what you want a variety of colors and our plant-based foods um, some unique qualities that help reduce our risk of cancer are they contain components known as phytochemicals and antioxidants and these these special ingredients are attached to the fiber in the food so eating your food in its whole form whole form is going to be more nourishing for your body. And we think about nourishing our body is really what we're talking about here in reducing our risk of cancer. Um, When you juice things, you're pulling away the fiber and oftentimes losing the majority of the nutrients. And the other component with the fiber that makes it so unique is it is actually what slows our digestion. And it allows our body to cleave those nutrients in a timely manner to where they're absorbing, your body's absorbing them. When you drink juice that's Um, food that's been juiced you might notice that your urine is like a a really um, bright yellow it's a lot of that we, we sort of just spew out you know because our body just can't absorb it all but when you eat it in its whole food form your body has time to absorb it that fiber also is really good for our digestive tract and we know that fiber is important for cleaning our digestive tract. Um, There's two types of fiber in our plant-based foods. There's a soluble fiber and an insoluble fiber. And soluble fiber um, and insoluble fiber both have two different jobs, but they're both naturally occurring in our plant-based foods. So when we're talking about a diet to help reduce risk of cancer, two-thirds of your plate coming from a plant-based food, um, just in summary, Frozen and fresh are more ideal. They're going to be closer to harvest than canned would be. Variety of colors. The other third of your plate coming from a lean protein source. And examples of lean protein, again, are fish, especially some of those cold water fish. And those are things like salmon, tuna, halibut, sardines and um, herring, those are great fish to bring in those special anti-inflammatory nutrients. And then some other lean proteins are things like um, uh, white poultry, so chicken breast, turkey breast. Um, and then you can also use some plant-based proteins um, throughout throughout your, your week. Tempeh is going to be a really good option, so people like tofu, beans can be part of that protein component um, also. And so that's what I tell patients to focus on is what you should be eating. Those things that I reviewed are going to be your cancer risk-reducing food choices. So I hope that helped answer your question.
1: Well, thank you so much. And Dr. Benson, did you want to add anything to that? Or
2: No, that's uh, wonderful, wonderful advice. Okay. Uh, there, there's a great deal of research in terms of food and the impact. For example, I, I talked about the microbiome. And so uh, uh, we've clearly had massive changes in our foods, uh, heavily processed foods. And so the summary you just heard, it's just great advice, getting away from these processed foods and really eating these, these healthy variety of foods. It's just a, a good approach to eating in general uh, and an important area of research.
1: Thank you so much. I, I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants as well for asking such good questions. Um, we, although we've done this program before, I think the questions on today's program are really outstanding. Um, and I do want to comment about the questions because we weren't able to take all of your questions. So I just want to let everyone know that if you had a question, um, if you asked a question, terrific. Uh, but um, and if you have a question yet to ask or are thinking of another question, all of you take your questions back to your healthcare team with the information you learned today, and let your healthcare team then work with you on getting some more answers from them. Hopefully, you've learned some things today. That will better inform your questions um, and you'll be able to ask your healthcare team those questions because they know you the best they have your medical records and remember your healthcare team consists of many different um, experts on that team to help you so that um, so your oncologist surgical oncologist your dietitian your oncologist nurse oncology social worker your financial advisor um, financial navigator um, resource navigator a lot of different uh, people to assist you there. Um, also, um, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with cancer, um, with colorectal uh, cancer, saves fog, but any type of cancer. I want you to now know that you are part of a community of support and you can contact Cancer Care at any time. And if we don't have the resource, we'll, we'll connect you to the place that does. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and
0: gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.